gospel writer Luke says this. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. And when he was 12, 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy, Jesus, stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured all of these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is the word of the Lord. God, we ask that you would give us clarity and understanding that we too, like Mary, would be able to treasure your words in our heart and thereby be changed forever. We ask that as we take baby steps in this, learning what it means to follow in your footsteps and to follow you, to be like you, to fall more in love with you, we thank you and appreciate your kindness with us. You're with us every step of the way. We ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to do all of that work in us, not only individually, but as a church, corporately. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, There's an article that I read by a journalist by the name of uh, Dina Shanker. It goes like this. The title was this. Americans just broke the psychologist's stress record. She goes on to write, a national survey of anxiety, didn't know if you knew there was a national survey of anxiety, there is, a national survey of anxiety finds a statistically significant increase for the first time since it was launched 10 years ago in 2007. So first of all, lots of anxiety. Second of all, there is a record-breaking upsurge in the stress levels that many of us feel today. Uh, the Gallup Research Center put out a poll uh, not too long ago saying that 8 in 10 Americans are suffering from stress. We are stressed. Perhaps some of you are in this room right now and you're nodding for the first time in a sermon. You're like, amen. (laughs) Stressed. My question, and the question that I think this passage interacts with, is why are we so distressed? Not just stressed, but distressed. Why do we live that way? Now, there are sure, surely very many variables involved in that. And we've spoken about anxiety quite a bit as a church. There are a lot of reasons for stress and anxiety. Some of them are good. Some of them are not good. Some of them stay with you. I don't want to answer all of them. This isn't going to cure anxiety for the rest of your life. But I do want to, by the power of God's word, the movement of his spirit, look at one reason 
why we might be distressed today. And it starts with Mary. The story opens with a particularly distressful episode. Have you noticed? The backdrop here is a feast, the feast of Passover, very famous, very important, significant feast in the life of Israel that happened uh, uh, right between the months of March and April. It was about seven days long, a week long. And this is something, like, if, you, if you've ever experienced a feast, we have plenty of our own old Spanish days, maybe Independence Day, could also be Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter. These are times where we eat and commemorate something important that has happened in our past, right? It's the same for the Feast of Passover. It recounts a miraculous deliverance of Israel from Pharaoh, uh, from, in the first service, this uh, One woman sent me this email summarizing feasts in Israel that basically went like this. Someone tried to kill us, we survived, now we're eating. That is basically every feast in Israel. Somebody tried to kill us, they failed to do it, we're going to eat now. Every feast, including this one, delivered from Pharaoh and from the power of Egypt. Now, there are at least three significant feasts in Israel. There's a lot of feasts a lot of routines, a lot of observances, a lot of awesome stuff, a lot of things to remember, but there are three feasts that you better not forget. They are the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. All of them eating because we almost got killed, but God saved us. Now, these three are so significant that the law of Moses required that all male Jews be required to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for each of these feasts, so three times a year. If you were too poor to make that pilgrimage, you would at least try to do the Feast of Passover. Now, at what point would you become a man and be required to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem? The going age was about 13. 13 was the age that a Jewish male was considered responsible to respond to God's word and to his law. How old is Jesus right now? He's 12. This should tell you a couple things. One, Joseph and Mary were extremely serious and pious about God's law. They observed it. They were into it. He's not even 13 yet, and they're already whetting his appetite with the things of God. It's amazing. It should also tell you a little bit about where Luke is trying to take the listener, you and me. Up until this point, we've been getting baby Jesus, and all of a sudden, in a single paragraph, it shifts. Jesus is now preteen Jesus. In ancient, uh, in ancient Hebrew thought, he's not just a preteen like we would think. He's about to become a man, an adult man in their understanding. You see where Luke's taking us? This is a coming of age. This is a shift into a new, a a, a different transition in life where there's a coming of age now. Now, for those of you that that might have kids, you remember this significant change where your kids uh, used to hang out on the carpet as infants and they didn't move and that was awesome for a number of reasons. One, you could go get coffee and not worry about anything. Then there was this change where they started walking and your whole world changed. Everything changed. You couldn't just leave them because now they're like Spider-Man, Spider-Woman, just climbing all over the walls. Jesus is no longer baby Jesus at this point. He is a preteen. Now, you might be thinking, yeah, but it's Jesus. He's the Messiah. 
He's probably the most trauma-free preteen in all of history. Wrong! The story is about Mary losing her child for three days in a large metropolitan city. That's what we're reading. That's the Bible right now, right? She loses her child. Now, I've not lost my child in a large city, but I have had that feeling that I've lost my child. Uh, Brianna and I love taking our kids to the Santa Barbara Zoo because it's small, it's accessible, it's easy to get to, and if you need to burn like two hours with your kids, just go over there, run around. There's a section in the zoo that's like a kid's park, right? It's got an anthill in the middle that kids like to slide down on cardboard. Over to the right is a spider webby rope uh, network thing that they climb on. Over to this section, there's some gongs that you can hit. There's some dinosaur eggs you can crawl in. There is a cement tunnel you can run through at breakneck speed that comes up to about here. Think about that for a second. And... This is kind of the place where you just settle after a long day at the zoo, okay? Now, it is probably one of the most popular and ingenious places at the zoo on a Monday when nobody's there. On Saturday, it is 50 square feet of chaos and anxiety. I went there once on a Saturday, usually go on a Monday, went on a Saturday by myself, Bree stayed at home, I took the kids. And they immediately wanted to go to the anthill. It was a Saturday, so every parent in all of Santa Barbara had descended upon the zoo with fervor and fury. I walk up to the the entrance of the, the park, and there are dozens, dozens, maybe more than dozens, maybe trozens, I don't know, of kids in this little square space. And I'm all, okay, it's okay, kids. They'll stick with me. This is going to be easy. It's all right. Let's do this. Let's step out in faith. All right. Brianna does this every day. I could do it right now. Okay. Mom, go. And they run. Now, as soon as they disperse, they do what they always do. Go in completely opposite directions. And even though I would love to have the eyes of an iguana, I can't track with them. And so immediately... My kids are just in different spots. Jude goes straight to the anthill. Uh, my, uh, my daughter runs off to the dinosaur egg. She's hitting the gongs, and I'm immediately freaking out. I'm like, okay, I see everything. There's 50 kids everywhere. Parents are not paying attention, and it's absolute chaos. The anthill, 50 kids on that anthill. Uh, first graders are sliding down, taking infants out by the knees. They're face planting. Parents, they don't care. They're on their phones. They're jabbering on with each other. There's kids just getting lost in the sand, throwing things at each other, just going all over the place. And I'm just, just trying to focus on my kids. And I see Jude, and I see Abby, and then I see Jude, and I turn my head, and Abby's gone. And that feeling begins to arise in my heart. I don't know if it's my heart. It's somewhere in there. But I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. She's somewhere around here. So I'm looking, and I'm, I'm going back and forth because I don't want to lose Jude. I look for Abby. I can't find her. I look over here. I look over by the gongs. I look over by the cement tunnel. She's not in there. I look over at the anthill again. Jude's gone. Oh, no, where's Jude? I look over at Abby. Can't find Abby. And at this point, I'm starting to freak out, and it feels like he's been lost. In, they've been lost in Jerusalem for three years. It's only been five minutes, Okay but I'm just starting to feel all the anxiety. And finally, I walk over to the dinosaur egg, and Abby is curled up in one of the dinosaur eggs, and she's smiling at me with that just look of, of, I don't even know what it is, but she's just waving at me. And I just, I say, okay, awesome. And then I crouch down, I bury my face in my hands, and I groan. 
Now, that was just a 10-minute stint. I can't imagine what Mary is feeling like at this point. She doesn't lose Jesus at the zoo, which is a very small zoo. She loses him in Jerusalem. Now, the numbers on Jerusalem are a little scattered, but we have reason to believe, one writer believes that the population of Jerusalem was about 600,000 at the time of Jesus' uh, uh, childhood. Now, it's not just any day. It's, it's one of the most popular feasts. So as, as families are being required to come into Jerusalem, uh, writers tell us that they expect the population of Jerusalem at this point to be between three and four million people. So now we're looking at the city of Los Angeles, okay? So unless, uh, uh, at the risk that, this, that the, the basic idea in this story has escaped any of us, let me just summarize it in a second. Mary loses Jesus in the city of Los Angeles, okay? That's basically what we're looking at here. Now, there's a lot of valid reasons for being stressed, good ones. That maternal urge inside of her, wondering if her kid is okay, wondering how this could have happened, all legitimate reasons. But as she finds Jesus and they interact, this conversation with Jesus starts to expose another reason behind her anxiety, something Jesus would go on to do with a lot of people, start to expose deep places in their hearts. One of those reasons, not just the the ones that we all have, that fight or flight tendency that we get whenever there's challenge or danger that she likely had, but Jesus also seems to uncover something else. That perhaps some of her unmet expectations surface to the top. Sometimes our expectations don't end up getting met. Sometimes our anxiety is the cause of real dangers and challenges, and it's a good type of of stress. You stress, they call it. Other times, and for a variety of reasons, it's simply because our set expectations have not been met. Perhaps that's true for you. Maybe your career is not where you thought it would be at this point in your life, and you're stressed. Maybe it's a relationship in your life that did not uh, quite go the way that you were hoping it would go and you're stressed. Maybe you've not gotten into a relationship in your life and that's causing you stress and anxiety. Maybe it's the children that you have. Maybe it's the children that you don't have. Maybe it's this town that you live in. Maybe you came into Santa Barbara with wild hopes and dreams and those have not been realized yet. Maybe it's 10 years in and they have not been realized yet. Maybe it's your church. Maybe you came into a spiritual community with all sorts of expectations, only to have them broken piece by piece. Maybe it's Jesus. Maybe Jesus has has disappointed you, your expectations of Jesus. Maybe it's just radical change and transition in your life. Maybe you're sitting down right now and you're saying to yourself, this is just the way we've always done it. Why does it have to change? I wonder if Mary was saying this herself. Because in verse 44, it says, supposing Jesus to be in the group, they went a day's journey. She assumed he would be with them. When they began to search uh, for for him among the relatives and acquaintances, they could not find him. It was a common practice that when you traveled, you you usually didn't travel alone. Roads were dangerous, so you went in a caravan, maybe 40, 50 people. So Mary and Joseph had every normal right to assume that he would probably be in that large caravan somewhere, didn't give it much thought. 
an expectation. Mary expected that Jesus would be in a certain place at a certain time. And after a significant amount of searching, she finds him in the temple. You have to think, you know, she was probably, it probably took the first day before she realized that Jesus was gone, another day of traveling, leaving a day of searching. So she's searching Jerusalem for a day with Joseph, not finding him. Finally finds him at the temple. I wonder if that's the last place she looked or one of the last places she looks. And her response sounds like a normal response. I would certainly not be quite as restrained as her had this been me. Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. This is a hard about text. You don't read the emotion in it all the time. She might have been yelling. I don't know. She might have been whispering. But this is what we get. And Jesus' encounter with her changes everything. Have you ever noticed that a single encounter with Jesus changes everything sometimes? It might not change all of your circumstances, but it might change you. Mary interacts with 12-year-old Jesus. And he's doing the thing that he would become famous for. Interacting with people's hearts in a way that leaves them changed. It turns out, and I'm going to read what he says in a moment, but it turns out that perhaps it's our expectations sometimes that are the problem. He says, why didn't you, uh, he says, uh, excuse me, in verse uh, 49, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? In other words, after a day of searching, why is this the, the, the last place that you checked? Didn't you know I would be here? Didn't you know I would be in my father's house? That this is where I belong? This is what I was born into? This is what my mission is? This is what my purpose and desire and passion is? There's no other place for me to be. In a moment, in a sentence, Jesus gives his unique priorities as the son of God. Um, I wonder if that was jarring for this mom that raised him her whole life. It says in verse 50, and they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. So they're not just stressed. They they didn't just have their expectations shattered, but they're also a little confused. Now, I wonder if it's because of Jesus' usage of the word father. What Mary says in that line is, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress, son. And his response is, didn't you know I would be in my father's house? Speaking about a different father, I would imagine as a dad, I'd feel a little wounded. All of a sudden, not just different priorities, but a changing relationship. He would do this again when he was grown up. And people were looking for him, saying, Jesus, your, your mother, your, fa- your mother, your brothers, and your, your, uh, your family are looking for you. Where have you been? Jesus is still getting lost. They're still misplacing him as an adult. And his response is, who are my father, my mother, my brothers, and my sisters? And he, do- he looks around and he says, everyone who does the will of my father in heaven Those are my brothers and sisters and father and mother. Jesus is starting to self-differentiate 
we start to see in here a glimpse of not the baby that is Jesus, but the unique son of the living God who has his own terms, his own life, his own agenda that comes straight from heaven. He's different, and I wonder if there was just a sense of woundedness in his parents upon hearing this. What we do know is Mary is distressed. She says as much. And she's confused. She's lacking understanding. She says as much. Because Jesus isn't fitting into their expectations of, Jesus, uh, of what, what he's supposed to be. That might be the best thing that's ever happened to Mary at this point in her life. If I can uh, explain that by way of analogy, um, my son, Jude, he's three years old, got a backpack some years ago that he used to stuff with all of his trucks. Jude loves trucks. That's all he loves, trucks and food. And at the beginning, he started with a handful of trucks that easily fit inside of his backpack. I actually brought his backpack with me. Don't tell him that I have it, or you will hear the fury. He used to stuff them in here, zip it up, put it on his shoulder, and go everywhere with it. Went to school with it, goes to church with it. Uh, he goes to the zoo with it. He sleeps with it in his bed. It's something that he holds tight. He doesn't have a security blanket. He has security trucks in a backpack. At a certain point, he began to accumulate so many trucks that they stopped fitting in his backpack. And one day, I walked into his room to see him cross-legged on the floor with this backpack open, filled to the brim with a stack about this high of trucks. And he was pushing them, and tears were streaming down his cheek, and he was saying, I can't fit them in, Daddy, help me. And I looked at the bag, I looked at the problem, and I, I got down on one knee, and I attempted to explain logically to him why this didn't work, which always works really well with three-year-olds. I'm coming to learn. I told him, Jude, you know, like, you just have, like, you have more trucks than the size of your backpack. Like, here's what you do, buddy. You just take half of these trucks, put them away. You don't have to take them to church with you. Just take the ones that you have, and it'll be all right. Before I was done with that sentence, he burst into the most angry tears I have ever seen, just hot tears flowing. He just started screaming and wailing and crying, picked up his backpack underneath with the top open, started thrashing it around, Shra truck shrapnel just coming just by my face, takes it and he just throws it on the ground and just huddles on the floor. And I realized, okay, bad suggestion. A few days later, I saw him, not with his backpack, but with arms of trucks, and he had a new idea. I'm just going to make multiple trips for all of eternity until my trucks get to where, where I need them to go. <laughs> Judah discovered something that I wish I discovered years ago. When your backpack no longer has the capacity to contain the object of your affection, it's time for you to trash it. The moment that what your, your expectations are not able to hold the object of your affection, that which drives you and what you were made for, it's time to trash those things. I say this, and I've entitled the sermon, Thrash Your Backpack, because the truth is, everyone in this room has a backpack. 
Now, it might not be red and yellow and black, and it might not have mater on the front of it, but each of us have a backpack. Instead of a literal backpack that we wear, these are our limitations. Not God-given limitations, but our own human expectations that we put on people, that we put on ourselves, that we put on God, and they go something like this. I have a preconceived box that you are supposed to fit in, and as long as you fit in that box, we're going to get along just fine. We do that in our relationships. We do that in our marriages. We do that to our kids. We do that to our parents. We do that to ourselves. And we do that to God. It might sound like this. God, I love you. I love some of the things that you say in here. And I think we're going to get along just fine. But I have one of these. And I would like for you to fit in it. And as long as you fit in it, and don't pop your head out too much or create too much of a ruckus. This is going to be a wonderful match made in heaven. And we keep running into problems because God doesn't fit in our boxes. He doesn't fit in our parameters. He doesn't fit in our boundary system. And he doesn't fit in our backpacks. And perhaps the kindest thing that Jesus could say to some of you and to me included is it's time to thrash your backpacks. I don't fit in them. And the people that you love don't fit in them. And you don't even fit in some of the expectations you've created for yourself. Maybe the kindest thing Jesus can do to some of us today is shatter, thrash our backpacks that we put around him. You might have experienced this last week. We were speaking about the sanctity of life. And some of you might have cringed at that. Maybe it was just, it was just, it was grading at a particular ideology you have held your entire life. And you're like, oh, this is uncomfortable. But there might have been others in this room that you heard that, anything about the sanctity of life, and you're like, yeah, preach it, brother. But you, you might, as we go through Luke and we hear other things that Jesus has to say about racism, about refugees, about the poor and the marginalized, you might cringe at that there will always be a cringe-worthy moment to the follower of Christ because he lets nobody off the hook. Now, this is why Jesus is probably as popular as he is. He said a lot of things, and almost anybody in the world can find something in his large body of quotations and sayings that we like. But if you keep searching, you'll also find some stuff that grates against your skin. Because Jesus does not fit into your uh, ideological package. He does not fit into your preconceived philosophical backpack. And he doesn't always meet your expectations. He is the unique son of God and he knows better than anyone on the planet how life is supposed to exist and he came here to restore everything to that will and to that plan. So for the person who doesn't just say, I want to pick and choose words that make me feel good about myself, but I'm doing this thing, man. I'm going to examine everything that you say. As, as Matthew 28 says, as Jesus said in Matthew 28, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded. To the person who is brave enough, risky enough, maybe even crazy enough to walk with Jesus through that challenge, you're going to be confronted. And it's okay. True relationships have confrontation. Ones that don't are fake and shallow. 
Jesus wants a true, deep, rich, meaningful relationship with you, but that's going to require a little bit of challenge in your life. It seems like Mary understands this because it says in verse 51, and his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. I love that word treasured. The Greek word that Luke uses for treasured means uh, specifically to observe, to consider. And it uses this, uh, Luke is using this tense that speaks not of a fleeting thought that just happened, like, oh, Mary thought about it and then moved on to something else. But there was this continuous nature to her treasuring. So in other words, Mary didn't forget about it. We have every reason to think that a year later, Weeks later, months later, she was still thinking about what Jesus said. Like, huh, she's meditating, contemplating her interaction with Jesus, things that Jesus said and did, and it was slowly beginning to change her. I love this about how Jesus calls his followers. Because he does call us to commit and to step out of the boat and follow, but he doesn't require that we get everything figured out on the first day, right? Right? He doesn't require that we dispel all doubt and that we are 100% confident about everything. He takes doubting Thomas and he says, walk with me. He takes Peter who often had his foot in his mouth and says, just come with me. He takes the sons of thunder as they were affectionately called, two disciples that just wanted to kill everybody that disagreed with them and he says, you guys are crazy, come with me. And step at a time. Day after day, Jesus patiently and kindly walks with people who are just courageous enough to say, I think there's something special about you, and I want to examine everything that you say and do. It says at the end that Jesus uh, submits to Mary, to his parents. He obeys his parents. But in the end, she would surrender to Jesus. She would surrender expectations. And I wonder if at that early stage in Mary's life, it was that constant, because this isn't the first time we see Mary treasuring the things that Jesus said in her heart. I wonder if all of those years of constantly interacting with things that Jesus did and pondering, meditating, considering, treasuring, had an effect on her character and her life. Because at the end of these books, when Jesus rises from the dead and all of his male disciples flee the scene, first one there are the Marys. Could it be that she's already been in the practice of treasuring and trusting and examining and walking with and following? If we were to learn from the simple interaction between Mary and Jesus... At least one thing, it would be a lot of us have good and healthy expectations, but if we're honest, perhaps we have some unhealthy ones. You know what those are, because they're the ones that rob you of your sleep at night. They're the ones that rob you of the things that matter, that are truly valuable, relationships, not the least of which is the one that you have with Jesus. They're the ones that fill your mind with Not just healthy fight or flight stress, but the kind that stays with you all day and all night. And if we were to learn anything from Mary, it would be this, to consider 
to ponder, to treasure the things that Jesus says, specifically about our own expectations. What is it in your life that you have created? What boxes or expectations or containers or backpacks are you imposing on other people, on Jesus, on God, on relationships, on yourself that you're desperately trying to achieve that is keeping you up at night or filling your mind in the middle of the day? I think if we were to look at Mary, we'd have to say, it's time to consider and to surrender some of those things to Jesus Christ. I love how Peter would put it, cast your cares on Jesus because he cares for you. And there is a freedom that comes with releasing, not healthy ones, but unhealthy expectations. The ones that Jesus does not have for you. The pressures that are not yours to carry today. The things that other people have kind of put onto your lap and onto your shoulders. Perhaps the expectations you have put onto your own shoulders. Perhaps out of fear or pressure. There's a freedom that comes from releasing some of those things. And while some of those ex- some expectations are good, others, at least I've discovered in my life, are simply symptoms of my own desire to control a particular outcome. Some expectations that I have are good. I expect that Abby will go to school, will eat her breakfast. Certain expectations are good. I expect that Abby and Jude will do everything that I say at the moment that I say it, Probably not the best. I've come to learn slowly but surely over the past few months that most of those desires that I have, not speaking for you, but that I have are mainly my incessant desire to be in control of my own life, of other people's life, and of things around me. And perhaps the best thing that Jesus could do for me right now is to thrash the backpack that I've been wearing. For those of you that would embark on such a challenge, there will come with that a certain degree of uncomfortability. It's uncomfortable to follow Jesus sometimes because he will confront you. He will call you to greater things. And greater things always mean things that you have never done before or are not used to or are not comfortable with. He may call you out of the boat onto the water to do something that is Humanly impossible to borrow one disciple's story. He might call you to reach out and heal the sick, something that you're absolutely afraid of doing. He might call you to share a word in someone's life. He might call you to trust him with your resources, with your time. He might call you to stuff that you have never imagined possible. He might call you to do nothing, to simply sit in your living room or in your kitchen and be still before the Lord. He might call you to some stuff that you've never done, maybe that you don't want to do. But if we know enough about Jesus today, Jesus is absolutely good to his people. And even though some of the things that he calls us to are challenging, they are always for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But it will come with a confrontation and with a challenge. Before we embark on those challenges, some of us need to examine our own expectations and release the ones that are not of the Lord so that we can walk in the freedom that God has for each of us. 
I'm going to ask uh, Cody to come out as we, and the rest of the team, as we sing together. And as we do, if you want to step out and respond in this way, you can make it absolutely simple this, morning, uh, this afternoon. You can do it this way. You can say, Lord, what are the ways that I have put walls or containers around what you are doing in my life? and perhaps even who you are. And as those things come to the surface, because he'll show you, allow the full range of human emotion to be felt in your life. It might be stress. It might be fear of the unknown. It might be bitterness at prior disappointments. It might be joyful anticipation. Whatever it is, allow yourself to feel And in that place of real feeling, allow Jesus figuratively to take you by the hand and to lead you into the place that he has for you. But that journey starts with the shattering of fear in our lives and the shattering of our own silly expectations and illusion of having control. Let's release those things to the God who is in control of our lives and has a perfect plan for each of us though we might not see it immediately. Lord, we come before you in the name of Jesus, and we ask that as we pray and as we sing, as we worship, that you would minister to each of us and that you would minister to us in that way that you are so good at doing by the power of your Holy Spirit, speaking words into each of our lives just for us. But I also pray that you would you administer to us not just on an individual level, but us corporately as a church. We have to believe that we're here for a reason, not to take up space in a theater every Sunday, but to be the people of God set loose on a town that desperately needs to experience the kingdom of God. So God, would you start this morning by releasing us by letting us loose, by tearing open the backpacks of our own desire for control and opening us to what it really means to step into the flow of the life of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.